0: This is a pod. A pod about dogs. Hi everybody and welcome to the Healthy Dog Pod. Today in the studio we have myself and Sophie as always. Hi. With us we have Vet Behaviour Team, Amanda Cole and Heather Chi. Welcome to the studio guys.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Why don't we start off with a little brief introduction as to who you are, what you do as a company and... um, yeah, just lean us in.
2: Um, Amanda and I are behavior vets and we met working at the RSPCA a few years ago where we were managing their veterinary behavior department um, and helping rehabilitate dogs in the shelter as well as offering support to um, patients who came to the RSPC vet hospital with behavior problems. And since then we have been consulting, we offer in-home visits for dogs who have issues, probably more emotionally um, and in terms of their mental health um, rather than the training aspect of things. Uh, So issues like separation anxiety, noise phobias, generalized anxiety. And we often find that uh, people come to us when they find that they've reached a limit in terms of their abilities to manage a situation. And they're becoming quite frustrated. They've tried training, it's not happening. And then we're sort of the next stage.
0: So you're looking at it um, as well as a management and uh, training element, which, you know, that's obviously where you've got a lot of experience in in that regard, but you're also looking at it as like a medical perspective.
2: Absolutely, because we are vets, we can take in consideration sort of a holistic approach, including the physical well-being of the animal as well as the well-being, because we know that they're often very interconnected, and it's easier to have that kind of wider perspective.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's really similar to what we work. That's why we work together so often. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that a lot of people probably aren't even probably aren't even aware of it or it's probably just becoming aware of is the fact that the emotional response of the dog does it determines the behavior in so many on so many levels and um, you know just training alone and is not always enough it's actually understand this is where something that you guys definitely helped me in my learning was understanding the emotional response of the dog in terms of its effects and how its brain works and all of that cause and effect
1: yeah, I mean, I think there's a, sorry about my voice, I've got a cold, um, but I think there's a really major misconception that uh, dogs that are what people would call badly behaved just haven't been trained properly or aren't obedient enough, whereas um, what we find in, in the cases that we deal with is that the the emotional stress or the anxiety um causes the animal not to be able to respond in what looks like an intelligent way. So most of our clients are very, very, very smart animals, but their anxiety means that they can't learn in a given um, environment or they can't process information normally the same way as a child that's being bullied at school may be very, very, very intelligent but unable to process information in a, in a heightened emotional state. So we try and um, address their anxiety organically so that they can start responding to the world more normally and show how wonderful and intelligent they actually are.
0: Yeah, I think it's so something that we see a lot is these dogs that we work with get branded as stupid. And uh, I've the, a lot of these dogs are almost like hyper-intelligent. They learn super fast, but they struggle to, they really focus in on one thing, but they really struggle with a lot of information all at once um, and they get overwhelmed. And uh, it definitely takes its toll on their emotional response, and then their behaviour. Like the behaviour that presents, from what 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 I see, is the symptom. And training it, trainers I think often fall into the trap of trying to train it out of them by treating the symptom. Whereas, from what I can see, with working with you guys, is you're coming at it from trying to address the cause of why that uh, problem's presenting in the first place.
2: Absolutely. I think um, it's difficult for people to understand that at times because their dogs can respond to training in specific situations, but they might not be able to generalise that training when they're feeling anxious or stressed. Um, And I think a nice analogy is like, you know, if you're having a panic attack on the plane, you're absolutely terrified of flying. If someone's sitting next to you and trying to ask you to do something, Normally you probably would be able to respond to them quite well and in a rational manner, but if you're having a panic attack, you're not able to be able to function in any normal kind of capacity. Um, and we are sort of putting that expectation on some of our patients um, when we shouldn't be. We should understand that they're not thinking at all. They are highly emotional at that point in time, and we really have to be kind to them And and empathize um, because I think everyone has had the feeling of being stressed before even not if you haven't had a full-blown at panic attack you do know how hard it is to be able to um, deal with things that you normally could when you're using your normal brain in a in a comfortable situation compared to when you're really stressed.
0: Yeah that's um, I think a lot of people are still reprimanding that and a fear of um, rewarding that negative emotional state, that uh, that panic attack, like you're saying, and um, I just still laugh at that to be honest because I always relate it back to you know if somebody's having a panic attack next to you, you know you could either ignore it and like the old myth would say like if you pretend to be really confident then your dog will pick up on it, or you could punch them in the face like correct it with a check chain, or you could offer them a brown paper bag and go hey. Here's something to make yourself feel better, bring you out of that irrational, reflexive brain and start thinking again, rather than trying to train them in that moment. I think as a trainer, that's where I see a lot of, um, people fall down, whether you're a professional or not. I think the lack of education on that, or the lack of information out there on that really has a big effect on how we handle problem behaviors. And, um, for me, it's what well, we see it every day. It's just, Cruel, almost. Um, obviously, nobody means to be, but because they're only doing, they're, obviously, it affects the person as well. They're not. They're often in a situation where they're, uh, com- they feel compromised, and they react almost out of. Well, they do. They react out of fear and confusion and themselves. And then you've got two individuals in a situation that neither of them wanted to be in. It's, um, yeah, it's it's something that I learned a lot from about how the dog's brain works, and it's not dissimilar to ours, is it?
1: no it's it's essentially the same as what you'd expect a one or two year old human child's brain to be, and the dog kind of stays in in that emotional and um, intellectual age its entire life and that you know that means that it can feel important emotions like fear and love and disgust it's just not capable of um some higher feelings that when we start to Prescribe them to dogs start to get us into trouble. So they don't feel guilt and they don't act out of spite. And you know they're not spending their entire life trying to manipulate the system to get a treat or to you know <laughs> to be able to sleep on the well. pillow. Well, donation.
3: Um,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think um, in a lot of respects the you know society expects too much of dogs. But if we bring it back and bring it back to the human. Um, Equivalent, you know, we know that a one year old child is going to get upset about a lot of things, and there's no kind of necessarily talking them through that. We just have to help them through it. Um, but the society at the moment expects a dog to be a good dog. Like if you feed it and if you walk it, then it should be a good dog. And they place a lot of labels on um, behaviors which dogs don't have any control of. And I don't think there's anything that could make a dog a bad dog. It just means it's an anxious dog and we need to help it. But
0: no, I completely agree. I feel like um, you a long time ago. I was in a uh, seminar um, with the APDT, and I was actually listening. To this the first time I ever came across you guys, and actually listening to Amanda speak. And um, well, she she had two two points that I really resonated with me, and one of them was uh, consent um, of the animal actually being in a situation. We put ourselves, uh, put our dogs in situations that are very human, and expect the dog to understand it, tolerate it, and comply. Um, And the other one, this one made me laugh, and I've used this example so many times since, was uh, our perception of what a dog should tolerate uh, in terms of, in comparison to a cat. I don't know if you remember (laughs) saying this.
1: (laughs) Not entirely, but I could probably guess what you're going. With
0: <laughs> it, it was it was along the lines of <laughs> if somebody approaches a cat that they don't know and it takes a swipe at them, they'll go, "Oh shit, I'm an idiot. That was cats do that. I should have definitely not done that." Whereas if you go over to a pat, uh, pat a dog that you don't know and it growls at you, moves away, or t- even takes a snap at you, you just pause and go, "Your dog's broke."
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like me, but I would have said it more highfalutin
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was uh it definitely got me thinking i know that much and i was still learning about i mean i still am <laughs> but i um i was still uh back then very much on the fence with in terms of positive reinforcement and correction i i just hadn't furthered my education mm. and you really got me thinking i remember with in a Kirstie's Sexual seminar a couple of years later and I came over and went, hi. <laughs> 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 and because you did, you got me thinking. And that's one of the reasons why we really wanted you in here today, because it does get people thinking about um, why dogs' behaviors are presenting the way they are if through understanding them. And, you know, I've been working with dogs for a while at that point, and I still I hadn't hadn't seen anything or heard anything like that that made me think that way and it challenged me it completely challenged me i didn't want to be wrong either um <laughs> you hate being wrong <laughs> but it was so good it was really good um one of the things that i i'd love for you to guys to go through is um just an explanation uh between the difference between the thinking side of the brain and that reflexive side of the brain because again that is something that um is i think A lot of people aren't even aware of how dogs think and how they learn.
2: Yeah, so when we think about dogs' brains, we have to look at their behavior in light of what part of the brain are they using and are they consciously making a decision about their behavior or is it coming from a more primitive part of their brain where their behaviors are going to be more reflexive or self protective and unfortunately juvenile um, and automatic because when we're doing training, we obviously want them to be using the higher parts of their brain which are a bit more evolved. They can take in information, they can think about it, they can make rational choices, they can remember from previous learning experiences, um, and they have to be comfortable and relaxed when they're in that space to be able to access that information. Um, When we're looking at the more primitive parts of the brain or the danger part of the brain, they're not consciously choosing to behave in a certain way. They're going to be behaving in that way because they're having an emotional response, whether that's from negative stress, so things like fear or anxiety, um, as opposed to positive emotional stress so if they're really excited or hyper aroused in both situations the behaviors that come from here are not usually going to be ones that we particularly want to see so they might involve things like aggression Um, they might be behaviors which involve moving away from the danger Um, if they're scared so flight or avoidance behaviors they may freeze which is a bit more subtle Um, some dogs can also become so overstimulated, like what you were mentioning before ian where um, they're not thinking but they're very very active constantly they're not taking in information appropriately um, and we're seeing behaviors which are a little bit excessive or out of context or disproportionate to the situation And because all of those behaviours tend to be unwanted, there's usually a judgment based on those behaviours. So, you know, it's easy for us to understand if a dog is trembling or hiding or shaking um, or moving away from something, we recognise that that dog is scared and worried about the situation. But a dog who might be showing sort of more aggressive behaviours, there's often, you know, negativity associated with that. We think that dog's being bad or disobedient or stubborn or naughty or dominant. Um, when the dog is just trying to make the thing that scares them or worry them move away by being scarier and bigger, the best, you know, defense is a really good offense.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, a lot of dogs, they, sorry. A lot of people, they'll say to me, oh, my dog shouldn't be scared of that. It's, it's half its size or. It, it doesn't matter if it, in my opinion I'm scared mm-hmm. of wasps. Yeah, I'm scared so. of spiders. I'm
2: scared of slugs. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm scared it, of anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to be Amanda. <laughs> it's yeah. um you know, every the dog gets to choose what stresses it out. Um and whether you deem it a stressor or not is completely irrelevant according to the dog. And um and yet, yeah, like a lot of people, maybe they'll go, "Oh well, you know, you sh- shouldn't be scared of that. You're pussy," and kind of drag it in and throw it in the deep end. And um, it's the same with our, I think, with that hyper aroused brain as well. People go, I think they set themselves up to fail a lot. They'll, they'll, for example, they'll rev the dog up, and I think the classic one we see is when people have guests over. And they'll spend the first 10 minutes throwing the, like, the ball and chucking it around. And then after 10 minutes, I will go, why won't the dog calm down? Because you've been running it. And, like <laughs> spiking its adrenaline for the last 10 minutes. It's it's like feeding it sugar and then going, hey, mate, why why are you up there? <laughs> Give it something to chew. <laughs> oh, these days, I'm like, put the balls away when your guests come over and leave out something to chew because uh, nobody's ever picked up a goat's horn and lobbed it across your living room.
1: <laughs> Maybe not to the parties you go to. <laughs> know what what parties you guys? (laughs) That's another podcast. (laughs) But I think there's a lot of energy put into yeah trying to rationalise anxiety, and it's it's futile because the definition is that it's you know a bad feeling about something that isn't bad, Mm -hmm. and it's in the eye and the brain of the beholder. So we try and get our patients, um, owners, clients not to really focus on why the animal's feeling, you know, a certain way and don't spend 25 hours, you know, trying to work out the origin story of the dog's anxiety. Um, it's more about just listening to what the dog's saying and then trying to make it feel better in that moment. And another frustration is that rescue dogs are supposed to be anxious and that that's really frustrating for us because – They don't have to be anxious. Like we understand that they've come from a situation that has bred anxiety into their brain, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be treated the same way as if we know that a dog was hit by a car, we'd still give it pain relief even though we know why it's in pain. Like,
0: Yeah, it's been through a trauma and you've got to treat it that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I think people treat emotional trauma so differently in that if they understand Why it happened? You know, he was hit as a as a puppy. They think that it's a normal response for the dog to be afraid of all men after that. When the reality is, if the dog's treated, it doesn't have to be afraid, and that's something that we hit our heads against a fair (laughs) bit. Yeah,
0: like people go, I actually did have somebody just the other day, just go. Oh, it's a rescue. Of course, of course, it behaves this way. If not, help you. I mean, fair enough. You've accepted the situation, Um, but your dog could the quality of life for your dog could improve. and i think uh i mean this is this is something that i think we all see uh is people wait for their behavior to affect them before they yeah. r- get help and um this is where if we actually are aware of dog body language how they're communicating and what they're actually signaling um we would have a better insight into how they're feeling and um you know the we we call it the four Fs, don't we? The responses to stress and um, fiddle behaviours, those displacement behaviours, comfort behaviours, whatever you may call them, um, they are the body responding to a heightened state of arousal when that amygdala fires. And good or bad, like you like you say, Heather, it's it's could be something really that the dog enjoys, but it's still starting to behave reflexively, and we should. To at least acknowledge it and note it in our mind as to which way it's going from there. Is it continuing to escalate, or is it? Did it notice something and then settle? But even just that initial awareness of fiddle behaviours would be for for the general public would be so helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If um, people start really watching their dog and monitoring for behaviours such as fiddle behaviours or just dog body language in general, I think we're not very good. I mean, fair enough, we're not dogs, but we're not very good at reading dog body language. And so oftentimes when um, we're explaining things during a consult, suddenly it'll be like an owner's eyes are opening and they're like, oh my gosh, they do that all of the time. had no idea what that meant. Just thought that was completely normal for my dog. And why would they know any different? Because that is probably what your dog is showing all the time. And if you haven't had any, can kind of comparison you wouldn't know any different Um, but it just is completely eye-opening and um, it's lovely that they are then able to feel like they're a bit empowered in terms of being able to understand how their dog's feeling and then they can change the situation or help their dog out if they're struggling
0: yeah and i mean really important to highlight i think fiddle behaviors they are normal dog behaviors they're natural the dog will do them anyway but you have to apply context One of them is the really obvious one is shaking it off. You know, if your dog isn't wet and constantly shaking, that ain't normal, mate. Sort it out, like address it. But if it's wet, of course, it's not. Well, it's not enough of course, but likelihood isn't. It's a stress. It's not a stress response. So context is really important.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, almost every consult I go to, if I go through the fiddle behaviors and I say, you know, their normal behaviour is performed out of context. So humans fiddle all the time and so a normal behaviour in a human would be to move your leg up and down but if you shook your leg the entire time, you know, you're probably going to think Amanda's a bit uncomfortable but she's not going to punch me in the face. You know, I'm not completely panicked but I'm showing you that I'm uncomfortable in a situation and the more um, humans can learn dog's way of saying hey i'm uncomfortable right now the more we're able to de-escalate the situation and start preventing dog fights and um dog bites and you know preventing the the things that end up in the news that shouldn't get to where they get to so knowing that um a dog that's mounting you that's not a funny thing that's a dog that's showing a stress behavior um, or a dog that's constantly licking its lips that's that's not it you know, doing a funny grin or a funny smile, that's showing that it's uncomfortable. And the more we listen to those minor behaviours, then the more the dog can feel relief, you know, the same way as if anyone's had a one-year-old child. As soon as they can start saying a word and you can start communicating with them, life gets a lot easier. So the more people who can start communicating with their dogs, then life will get a lot easier for everyone.
0: You start setting them up for a win. Mm. And um, I think it's the same with hyperarousal. Um... I, I, um, I know that, uh, some people will go, oh, you're just pointing out how stressed dogs are and dogs aren't always stressed. No, but hyper arousal is, you know, even, even if it's positive, you know, you start to see the dog, uh, arousal level go up. And I, I always say like the higher the arousal level, the lower the ability to really register and process information. And so say it's in a dog park and it's playing and you start to see it speed pick up and you start to see it get real intense. Um. Play is a conversation between dogs. It's meant to be a back and forth. By stepping in earlier and noticing that your dog is starting to act reflexively, starting to not listen to the other dog's conversation, you, meet, you start to bring them out, call them away, start to get their thinking brain active again. And just with some simple recall exercises, I just ask people to call your dog back like regularly and get it to sit in front of you for 30 seconds and reward it and watch the dogs go from this like wide-eyed monster <laughs> staring at you to this dog that starts just breathing and relaxing. And instead of reprimanding it when it goes wrong, you can, by spotting these body language signals and keeping that dog in the thinking side, where it can process information and really comprehend what's going on around it, you set it up and you up for a win because you don't want to be reprimanding your dog either. Nobody calls us when it's going well. And i have always tried reprimanding first. I think that sometimes that's what people think.
3: They're doing the right thing by doing that until they know better. So that's a tough one.
0: A lot of what, sorry, a lot of what we do, all of us, is that proactive approach. Preventative care?
2: Preventative care would be the same. Like, that's what we as vets do, and probably you as trainers. Like, you know, puppy preschool, preventative care right from the start. For us, vaccination, we don't want to wait until, you know, a dog has parvovirus and then has to stay in hospital for a week afterwards trying to fix the problem. Why wouldn't we set things up to succeed in mental health as well as physical health and social health? Um, If we can possibly make a difference, then's the time to do it rather than after the fact then you've got a problem
0: yeah and i think when a, a, when somebody's called yourselves and and us as well you know we will go in and i think uh, a lot of people may be expecting um the the problem to be solved um, and um,
3: <laughs> like this yeah
0: <laughs> and if but if that dog is carrying um stress if it's been going through this for a long period of time um and that's pretty normal. Is this? This has probably got to a point, like I said earlier, when it's now become a problem for the person. The dog's probably been going through this for a while. It doesn't just it doesn't just magically get better. We do actually have to. One of the things we encourage is a stress break to allow it to recover, to go. Your dog has been exposed to this high emotional state, this irrational state, for so long. No, it's not thinking straight. And just like you and me, if I've had a real busy time at work and I'm under the pump, I need a break. I need to take a step back and zoom out and go, Oh shit, I'm not actually thinking, I'm not I'm everything I'm doing right now is just a reflex response. Um and I'm just putting out little fires everywhere but the house is burning down. Zoom out and it gives I mean from our perspective, it gives people the opportunity to breathe as well. Even though they might want that problem solved right now. If you go look you don't have to throw your dog in the deep end. you don't have to go and reprimand the dog and stand there in a stressed out place that you don't even probably want to be in yourself and get in a shitty frame of mind. I think it gives everybody a better more breathing space
1: yeah, I think um you know I think when we're called out to a consult the the picture that the client has is that Heather and I will come out. With some kind of dog whispering wand, and we will be doing all this hands-on stuff with the dog, and um, somehow, you know, manipulating it into some type of magical dog. And the reality of what we do is, we spend a few hours talking to the client and explaining, actually, what's happening inside the dog's brain, so that the client is then given permission to to release and to take a break and to actually be the dog parent that they want to be because generally before they've seen us they've seen um, some people who may not be using science or current science um, as a method of communicating with the dog Um, and if we think about neurologically what what that dog's been going through it started off with Um, an anxiety pathway that was maybe a dirt road and every time it goes down that pathway and every time it's exposed to the trigger, whether that trigger be another dog or a person or being alone um, and wasn't helped through that, then that dirt road becomes a highway. And so giving the owner the permission not to go down that highway and to take a break until we can get their brain functioning so that we can build new roads is actually... um, we find quite a relief for our clients. They kind of exhale at that point that we're saying, you know, you don't need to do this. You don't need to bat your head against the wall every day because it's not working because your dog's brain isn't functioning right now. So if we take a break, get it functioning, then all that work that you put in, um, you'll get a result as opposed to asking your dog to sit 25 times a day and it and only responding once. <laughs> so <laughs>
2: And when we think of mental health, you know, it's similar to other forms of um, long-term chronic disease management. Um, you know, if you have a diabetic dog, you are not going to be able to find the right dose of insulin and the right diet and the right level of exercise for your dog immediately. You're going to have to go back to the vet and check its blood glucose levels, experiment a little, see how it fares, fine tune. It can take weeks. It can take months. And We're good at understanding that, you know, if a bone's broken and a dog's had surgery, that it's going to take time to heal and that we're gonna have to reintroduce things slowly. We're not just gonna go, okay, your dog's had surgery, let's throw you in the deep end and go back for walks and runs two weeks afterwards. It's gonna take time and we have to introduce it slowly. And it's exactly the same with mental health. We have to wait till the brain's in the right space. Has it healed enough? Is it ready to be exposed to things again? going to be a long-term journey
0: and that's where we step in afterwards as trainers and we int- reintroduce the dog uh to the world at a pace that it can cope with without flooding it i think um one of the counter arguments i hear a lot is uh counter arguments for against positive reinforcement is it works until it doesn't and in my opinion it works until it's flooded don't flood it It's not that hard. Um, You just, if your dog is acting um, reflexively, you've exposed it to too much. And if you're then forced to, if you feel then forced to correct it, you have flooded yourself and your dog. What what are you doing? Why go, go back, take a step back. Like you, nobody's winning there. You know, you put all that uh, preventative work in and set it up to be able to be in a frame of mind that is ready to receive new information and learn. Don't then flood it and expect it to go in exactly the same situation and magically have learned a new behavior. It's, um, I think, uh, one of our other friends down in uh, South Australia, they uh, explain it like sand tracks. Um, If you go down that route enough times, it becomes ingrained. And one of the nice things that I think you guys always say is, um, they're synapses that fire together, wire together. It's... They just, once that route has been traveled, you end up going down it again because that's the one you know. So as a trainer, working with you guys, we've got to go, all right, this dog is now in a frame of mind to learn, but that doesn't mean that it's magically fixed. And um, yeah, we just, this is why I enjoy working with you guys because you give us the best opportunity to actually succeed.
3: So I think today what we hear a lot about is um, the stigma around mental health, um, humans but also in dogs as well you know a lot of people don't really believe that it's true i just want to hear your insight to that a little bit a little bit more
1: uh science tells us it's it yeah. is true <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. <you>. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah i think people think that dogs their the dog's brain is so completely different than a human brain but if you break it down it's very 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 similar like we have um a part of our brain that's probably a little bit bigger and allows us to you know want to watch tv for 10 hours in a row but um essentially the the pure parts of a dog's brain is the same as the pure parts of a human's brain and if we believe that humans can have mental illness then we need to believe that that dogs can have mental illness and I think you know the stigma around human mental illness is so extreme still despite all of the efforts of you know, Beyond Blue and all that sort of stuff that, you know, people will still say you don't have depression, you need to exercise more and eat better and, you know, change your lifestyle. Well, Ian Thorpe exercised more than anyone in Australia and ate better than probably anyone in Australia and still had a severe mental illness. So a lot of our clients we see, you know, one of the first things that they'll say is we've, you know, we walk him three hours a day. We, you know, and we just like nothing's working. We feed him the most expensive diet, it's not about diet and, and exercise. It's about addressing, you know, actually what's happening inside that dog's brain and allowing them time and space to, to heal as opposed to wanting them to be obedient because they don't have to be obedient. We want them to be happy. Yeah.
0: yeah. When Definitely. somebody says to me, Oh, your dog's so well behaved, I'm like that isn't a compliment for me, if I'm honest, because my dog doesn't know how to lay down on cue. Um <laughs> But the reason why everybody notices is because he's so comfortable in his own skin. Mm-hmm. He is um, uh, one of, He's a happy dog that is so comfortable in, in his environment that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't present any problem but unwanted behaviours. Um, this emphasis that you know, if we tire the dog out, we'll make them happy. If we run them into the ground, we've met their needs. I think. I think. Uh, if owners put emphasis on making their dogs feel safe, settled and comfortable um, rather than training them how to sit and lay down, then we would have far fewer problem behaviors to address in the first place.
3: Yeah. Even a lot of people say, as you said, with walking, I need to walk my dog this many times because society says I need to take it to the dog park, I need to take it to the cafe. But it's not necessarily the best thing for your dog.
1: Yeah, and it's not like that's not the natural state that most dogs want to be in. Yeah. You know, they they don't want to meet a million other dogs. They don't want to go to a million different countries where they don't know the language and they don't know the currency. They actually like quite like their family and their home um, and interesting smells when they're not afraid of what's going to come around the corner and, and scare them. So I think people confuse walking with enrichment and yes. I want people to really look at whether – what you're doing for your dog is enriching your dog or whether you're ticking a box and your dog's actually going through um stress to tick your box yeah yeah i like that that sounded a bit um... rude
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's true though people people have their own um perception of what the dog might like instead of listening to their dog Mm -hmm. yeah
2: in our consults one of the things we ask is what are your your dog's five favorite things it's quite interesting to see. People can recognize what their dogs actually like doing, but that doesn't always correlate to what their expectations of what a dog should like doing are. And so if they have pressure about taking a dog to a cafe or a pub or walking at X number of times a day, and then you look at their dog's five favorite things, going to a cafe, walks, is not one of them. Why have a dog? Like, Isn't it to make it happy and be part of the family and do things that they enjoy rather than... What we think we as society should be doing with our dogs.
0: Yeah, for a long time I've been saying we get a dog to make us and them happy. You, the only way you can really do it wrong is if you consistently do things that cure, cause you and them, you or them, stress. And you either do it consistently or you start telling them off and getting stressed about it yourself. Like that's how you do dog ownership wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because you know, if you are taking your dog out. Because you heard that they like walking, but it's having a shit time, and you end up telling your dog off, then you're having a shit time.
1: Yeah. What are you doing?
0: Why are you doing that every night? Like, go and do something that you actually both enjoy, or don't worry about covering the concrete. Just do some smell things. That's the pressure of society, though. You know,
3: how many times do you walk your dog? Mm -hmm. When do you walk your dog? Where do you walk your dog? And sometimes they just they just want to stay home. They just feel safe at home
0: so why yeah <laughs> <laughs> just actually taking it easy um, yeah and you know just actually just going you know what i'm naked i'm absolutely naked and i just want to sit down and do nothing and then when you look at your dog you go oh look it's five o'clock gotta walk him he was asleep if you're actually listening to your dog in that moment he was asleep Um, there was no need to go and stir him up and take him out. It's just not necessary every single day. So one of the things that we do want to cover today is this misconception that you can reward a negative emotional state such as fear. Um, Please, Heather, tell us.
3: (laughs) We need help. It keeps going around. It's a
2: myth that has to be busted. (laughs) Please. I mean, if you've just been mugged on the street and your friend comes over for moral support and then says, nope, tough love, you just have to deal with it. Never mind, you've almost been beaten up, had your credit card, wallet, everything stolen from you, feel terrified now to walk again in the street. They just go, no, we're just going to let you deal with it. You'll be right. (laughs) How is that going to make you feel? As opposed to if they give you a hug, they take you home, they give you a glass of wine and some chocolate and are there for you emotionally. Are they making you in the future more likely to pretend to be scared about being mugged in the street in the future? No. (laughs) So why would we do that to our dogs? We want to try and make them feel happier. And you know, that's just the very basics of counter conditioning, changing your underlying emotional state from one of fear to being comfortable with something.
0: Yeah, like when we're working with the dog, Um, from a behavior point of view, it's not the same as obedience training. We are trying to alter their emotional state so that they feel better about something. So when they see a trigger, we create a positive association, not them to want to feel aggressive. I think, I don't really know how that got confused. I really
2: don't. i think because people are thinking about a dog behaving um, using their thinking brain and that they're making a choice about their behavior and so they're worried that if they give a treat at that point in time they're using positive reinforcement to make the behavior more likely again in the future so if we can distill it back down to what part of the brain is your dog using we'll be able to know whether it's appropriate or not.
0: So if the dog doesn't sit and you give and it's just stood there wagging its tail and you give it a treat anyway, you've not rewarded sitting. But if your dog is being aggressive and you give it a reward, you are altering its emotional state. You're actually making it feel better in that moment. Like that brown paper bag with the human earlier. Absolutely. Yes. It's like giving somebody a beer if they've had a shit day. Yes. It's not gonna make them want to have another shit day. (laughs) Right. Thank you for clearing that up. Hopefully that clears it up once and for all. Um, On that note, guys, we are going to wrap it up there. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Why did I say thanks? I'm here all the time. So,
0: for the guest speaker today. um, um, Remember, folks, leave us your feedback in the comments section below. And uh, as always, remember, a healthy dog's a happy dog. Ooh. And that was the pot.
3: The healthy dog pot.